0: It would be Kyle What a -a
1: once-in-a-lifetime experience, you know?
0: It was super weird, though, when it ended. And it's still weird now because that was my, like, vision for 10 years. Like, I'm going to do a doc about child slavery. It came to me completely randomly. I didn't cause it to happen in any way. But once that had happened, it was like, now what? And I still don't know. (laughs)
1: Hi, and welcome to this week's episode of Life with Kaka. I'm your host and fellow producer, Carolina Gropa. If this is your first time listening to the show, welcome. Whatever ways the universe brought you to this podcast, I'm so glad you're here tuning in and doing this life thing with me. Sarah Anthony is an impressive lady. She is also a dear friend and an award-winning documentary producer. She produced the Netflix film, bikram yogi guru predator she was also the lead producer on the grammy winning hbo doc series the defiant ones which is incredible if you haven't seen it pause this recording go watch all the episodes and then come back (laughs) most recently she was the producer on the price of free a documentary about child slavery which won the 2018 sundance festival grand jury prize sarah is someone who has dedicated her life to telling stories that impact change in our world And I have seen firsthand her put her money where her mouth is. I feel so incredibly grateful to have her in my life. I have learned so much from her. And I hope you'll take away some nuggets of wisdom in this hour we spent together. So this week, we discuss how she manages the tremendous stress that comes with being on the front lines of telling stories that impact change. We bond over our mutual love for budgeting. And she tells us how George Harrison helped her become a better human. So without further ado, let's dig in and hear from Sarah. It's hard to start these conversations with people that are my friends because I'm like, well, I I know you. So like, what's up? (laughs) We recorded your interview, you may recall, almost two years ago, uh, which is terrifying.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And so much has happened since then. And so part of wanting to re-record is because so much has happened, but also because it just gives me another excuse to talk to you and record. (laughs) So tell us, tell my dear listeners, uh, who are you and why you are so lovely. Go.
0: Uh, My name is Sarah Anthony. (laughs) Um, I am a, mostly have a producing background um, starting to get into writing, I love dancing. <laughs> no, I mean, i have a I have a wide variety of interests outside of filmmaking, but filmmaking is such an all consuming job mm-hmm. that I don't get a lot of time to practice those. yeah, uh, things that I love, but they are part of who I am. <laughs> well, tell me
1: a little bit more about producing, particularly. I'm curious, like where in your journey, how did you discover producing and then go, oh, like, this is a thing I can do for money? And that's weird. How did that all come about?
0: Yeah, I actually, um, when I first started in the film industry, I was as a PA in feature films. I saw a lot of producers because I was sort of on the office PA side and I did some set peeing. but I became a production coordinator pretty quickly and I spent almost two years doing that just going from film to film to film with the same team and um, I saw a lot of different types of producers and I didn't ever want to be a producer <laughs> just- I, mean, I didn't like coming up through the crew and hearing the way people talk about producers and seeing the way they act, is especially on low budget films. I was like,
1: will you um, tell us a little more about some of those things that you hear and how people act? Um, At least back then, maybe it's probably different now, but I would yeah, I'm
0: sure it's different now because this was 20 years ago. Oh. Um,
1: <laughs> Time flies.
0: <laughs> yes. Um, you know, it was always like, oh God, the producer's coming. Oh no, the producer, like they're just going to tell us we don't have the money. They don't actually care about the creativity. They only care about the bottom line. And it was like, and there were, there was an attitude that there were a lot of producers who got into it because of the glamour of film because they had money, Mm. but weren't artists in their own right that was a lot of the attitude about the people that I was around in the early my in my initial days in filmmaking and I didn't like it I didn't like filmmaking at all I didn't like the way people took themselves so seriously and got so stressed out about making movies Mm. I was just I mean I was a little self-righteous about it but <laughs> I i really just didn't like it so I left and I uh, went to London I was uh, just temping around trying to figure out what to do and I, I did the artist's way and As started do. doing stand-up comedy because that was the scariest thing I could think of when they asked that question in the book <laughs> and then the company that I was working at offered me a full-time job in their human resources department. And I was like, oh God, no, I don't want to go into human resources. Then the only thing on my resume was film. So I sent it out to a few film companies and I got a call to go in for an interview and they said, you do know we do documentaries, right? And I (laughs) had no idea that they did documentaries. And I was like, oh yeah, of course I know. I've always wanted to do documentaries. And I really love doing documentaries and in the documentary world, the producer is much more creatively involved mm-hmm. than they were in my yeah. experience of film, which I know is not everyone's experience of film. Like now, 20 years later, I understand <laughs> what, what a, uh, a really great producer does.
1: Oh, you have to tell us. I'm dying to know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> in the documentary world, producing was more creative and there and, uh, I got to do field producing on films that went all over the world. So I got, to, I got paid to travel, which is actually all I really wanted.
1: <laughs> what is field producing? How define that for us a little bit, how that's different from what most people may think of when they hear the word producer.
0: So a field producer would go out into the field to the on location to wherever you're filming and get everything set up in advance and make sure everything goes smoothly while you're there. And depending on the project, they might also go and interview subjects in advance to help you find the characters for the film. Um, I've worked on two television shows since we last talked, which is actually the first time i would worked on a television show. Um, and I was a field producer on um, Why We Fight, season two. Mm. And that was just going out and finding the characters, pre-interviewing them and you know making sure everything worked out. We had story story producers interesting, who came in after the field producer and worked with the edit. And that's what I'm doing on the show I'm on currently. It, I did the field producing and then I'm also doing the story producing, which is more yes. writing.
1: That's so interesting because I would just... I would just call that like producing. I mean, it is all producing, but I like I've been doing versions of that, but I've never knew they were like yeah. different titles. <laughs> I know.
0: I didn't understand it when I worked on my first TV show. I was like, why do you have all these different jobs and have a director? Yeah. What's the point? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I was like, why don't you just have one producer who does all of this stuff?
1: And now we know why. Right. Because it's so intense. It's so much work. Can so you imagine? Much work. Like you need all those people.
0: You actually yeah. do. It's remarkably hard. <laughs> television is much, honestly, think much harder to make than film because it, the schedule is so much shorter. Like we don't have, and this is something I just learned recently. In the documentary world, we do not focus on script as much as we should in the beginning, I believe. Mm. We tend to go into the edit and try things to see if they'll work. And some of the principles of the scripted world could and should, I think, be applied to the documentary world in advance of doing your interviews Yes, so that you get what you really know you really need. It's
1: like making a doc, depending on the kind of doc you're making, if there's still a narrative story with characters, with arcs, with conflict, but you just never find that until later. So it's like, how much can you get ahead of time to have a little bit of a blueprint of where you think it could go? Yeah. But yeah, every doc has different needs and demands. But I do think that certain projects, especially if they're not truly like archival um, if they're sort of like your the story is unfolding in real time, which tends to be a lot of the projects you are a part of, I think those projects do benefit from having yeah. almost like development up front, you know, like having this period where you can kind of really hone in on. Yes. Three things that you want to follow versus like the, the normal approach of like, let's just see where this goes and make the best of it, you know, and hope for the yeah. best. Like, it's a very um destructive way of storytelling, because I think it's so much harder. It's not for the faint of heart and tense. It is
0: very difficult.
1: You know more than I do. And you've, you've actually been and I do want to get into that, like into in some actually terrifying situations to bring some of the stories that you've been a part of to life, like you've really put Put yourself in the front line. Talk about field producing. Like you're in it with with everybody. You know you're so close to the action, and it's I'm sure it's exciting in many ways, but also terrifying in others. And I don't think a lot of people can stomach that kind of um, real world.
0: Yeah, it's, insight. it's definitely it can be difficult for people to stomach. And I I definitely recognize how um, jaded is not the word at all inured in a way almost this is just a silly example but i was in the dominican republic and we were filming at a trash heap and there were i mean beyond hundreds of thousands of flies just you if you opened the door of the car for a second the car would be full of flies it was that kind of situation and the two dps that i was with were like oh yeah oh and I just didn't even, I just wandered out into it and was just like observing things because I had been in places or, you know, in in other countries where I was like, I'm used to flies. So that's fine. <laughs> but yeah, that's, that's yeah, like...
1: You're like, this is normal. This is like a luxury.
0: That's a silly example. But you do have moments where you, like when we were doing the price of free and we would the first time that we went on a raid with Kailash and his team, and the Price of Free is the a story of Kailash Satyarthi, who won the Nobel Peace Prize for rescuing child slaves. And so he and his team would break into factories. And
1: mm-hmm. it also won Sundance, but we're you know no big deal.
0: <laughs> yeah, that was <laughs> some kind of weirdness. <laughs> but um, but the first we we went on a development trip for two reasons. I had been to India before, and I knew that it was a bit of culture shock. And I wanted the director to have some time there before we started filming to acclimate to the environment. Um, But also we wanted to see whether we could actually shoot one of these raids and capture it on film and whether it would be safe and dramatic, (laughs) you know, all of those things, all of the things, all of the things. And um, it was remarkable. It was a lot safer than I thought it would be. But it was harrowing in the way that these kids tried to escape. They're told that if someone comes like the police or something that they're being kidnapped, or they're going to be something bad is going to happen to them. So they're trained to hide and they ran up onto the roof. And
1: Mm.
0: we couldn't find them in this place, but it was clear that, that a lot of people were sleeping in this very, um, uncomfortable environment, you know, concrete floor kind of situation. And, um, we found them on the roof and they all came down and they were all barefoot and they all had glitter over their feet because they had been making wrapping paper for like Christmas (laughs) presents and stuff. Mm. And I, it was, it was kind of shocking and I still have a little bit of like PTSD around glitter. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> which, which is a weird thing because it's associated with parties. <laughs> so it happens a lot at festive occasions where I have like a little trauma around glitter, but that's not something you really want to talk about at a party.
1: I think it's an incredible visual how powerful we can very easily detach from that. It's so easy to feel like, well, that's happening over there. And it's like, we we all have our own, um, I think, ways to make peace with certain choices that we have made in the past. Yeah. You know, a lot of the producers I speak to, and especially people who go into the field of documentaries, like they really are the kinds of humans the kinds of souls that are just like open heart balls to the walls and they're going to go and they're going to be in these environments they're going to see this stuff and they're going to capture it so that we can then sit in the comfort of our home on Netflix and have this experience you know of something that is actually happening in real time and um and I think that's incredible I I commend you so much for for choosing whether it you chose it or it chose you (laughs) you know but for choosing to do something with your life and your career that most people would not be able to do. And you are doing it time and time again. And you're, here you are, like, finding ways to <laughs> laugh about it. Not laugh at it, but just find the humor. You know, life is either a comedy or a tragedy. And it's both.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> but to back it up just for a minute, because I was the one who sent you down a path. Okay, so you discovered that making docs was a thing back it up to there. And so what was that discovery like? And then what was the first project that you became a part of?
0: I did like a little bit of archive research on Commanding Heights, the battle for the world economy. I helped them like finish up in post. And then there was Campaign Against Terror. It was a frontline piece. And I did, I helped them going through archive. And it was really crazy. Sorry, this is a tangent, but the film... For I, When 9-11 happened, I had just moved to London and I didn't have a television in my apartment. I didn't have furniture <laughs> or anything. So I was shopping in furniture stores along the street and I saw it happen on television in one thing and I thought it was a movie. And then I saw that the same. I was like, that's weird. They're watching the same movie. And then I went home and somebody called me and told me what happened, but I hadn't seen it. And so I was doing archive research on this film and I have to watch archive of the people jumping out of the buildings. And I was just like, it was like a gut punch. I was like, oh my <sighs> God. But it was also like, wow, okay, film is powerful. <laughs> From there, I, I did a couple of random things like the harems of the Ottoman empire and the author PG Woodhouse. And I just loved it because every, film was like a masterclass in a new subject. And then I, they did a piece with Robin McNeil from the McNeil Air News Hour called, Do You Speak American? <laughs> and because I was originally had grown up in America, um, I was able to connect them with a lot of people. And so they promoted me to the associate producer and allowed me to travel on the shoots with them. So I was being paid to travel and I was meeting new people in every place. And I was like, this is the best thing ever. Um, And then they got a call from Frontline to do a series on the history of HIV around the world. So I campaigned to be an associate producer on that project and got to travel to Brazil and Thailand and around America and Europe a bit. But everywhere that I went in the place that they sent me was the worst place you could go in that place Mm. because of the nature of the subject matter yeah so it was not like touring the world yeah
1: you're not sunbathing (laughs) in Rio
0: no No. um you're not yeah (laughs) And and I learned about the worst of humanity because HIV appears wherever there are those cracks in the social fabric. And you see greed, you see bigotry, you see hatred and violence. And then you see like apathy and ignorance and fear and just the worst of humankind. Yeah. There's always some negative element of human nature that allows that to occur because it's preventable. So... I got really depressed after that, but I still, mm-hmm. I still loved the I- idea of filmmaking. And then I took some time off and just went traveling myself. And that was also weird because like I'd be in Thailand and I'd be two hours away from the AIDS hospice I'd been visiting before, or the brothels that I'd been visiting before, sitting on a beach and going, oh, "I can't relax because I know all that stuff is still going on."
1: Yeah. So how, how do you reconcile with that? I mean, you've seen so many different worst of humanity, like you said, not just with that project, but with some others that you and I have talked about. So how do you
0: reconcile it? How do you
1: reconcile it within yourself? You know, like, it's like this feeling of powerlessness that all of us feel to some extent, right? But I would feel that just watching a doc about this, I can't imagine being Mm -hmm. on the front lines and experience it through your own eyes, you know, and then having to like balance that with the privileges that we have in our own lives. Like it, was there ever a point where you had to go, well, I can't get depressed after every one of these projects, I have to have a different set of tools to help me navigate this if I'm going to keep doing this kind of work.
0: Yes. Well, after the age of eight, I was really not in a good place. And I was also, again, pretty self righteous, like I, you know, my mom would make some comment about needing a new lampshade. And I'd be like, so lucky we have electricity. Yeah. <laughs> you know. um, so obnoxious. Um, well, so two things happen. W- one, I, I was wandering around thinking, what can I do to help, particularly with children that were in brothels or even factories, whatever. And I thought, well, I can't go in and I can't bust in and pull them all out. <laughs> But I had just seen an inconvenient truth. For me, the power of that film was in the very simple messaging at the end in the credits that was just like, you could do this, and you could do this, and you could do this. And I was like, oh. they allowed people to leave the theater, understanding a problem and with a tangible action that they could take, even if it's small. Yeah. And I thought, oh my gosh. And, and then I was in Delhi, and I was, tr- I was trying to walk across to this little log over this nasty swamp to get into this slum because <laughs> it just looked interesting. I, I like I came up on the train and I, cause I like to like get on a train and go all the way to the end. If it's above ground to like explore the city as I go. And when I came up to this last stop, there was a incredibly disgusting slum up next to a really well manicured garden and this massive, beautiful building. So I was like, I got to check this out. And I walked up and it was the East Asian headquarters of the World Health Organization. Mm. So that was kind of mind blowing, like right next to the the worst slum I'd ever seen. Wow. Anyway, so I wanted to walk down in there. And there was this group of people that were huddled around this little television. And this woman turned to look at me and she was like, no, like do not come in here. (laughs) And they had somehow like rigged up this television and they were watching a Hallmark movie. Wow. And I was like, (laughs) okay. (laughs) So film gets. Yeah. Yeah. People love it. So I decided to move back to LA and go to the Peter Stark producing program. I applied. And while I was waiting to see if I got in through people that I'd known in other jobs, I ended up getting a job running the documentary division of this new rock doc company. So I figured it would be better to be paid to learn. Than yeah,
1: learn on the job.
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, but the question, I'm oh, sorry, I went on a complete tangent. The reconciling is, okay, I'm going to do something about it. As long as I know I'm working towards doing something about it, I can handle the shit if that makes
1: sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can handle relaxing on the beach.
0: I'm not very good at relaxing. <laughs>
1: Metaphorically, yes. <laughs>
0: yes. Yeah, yeah. I struggle with it every day. Should I just be out there on the front lines, volunteering and da 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 And yes, I should be doing that no matter what, often not because I'm working on a film. But I also know that I can have a greater impact potentially with a film to get, the conversation going and you never know who's going to pick it up and what they're going to do with it. No. Yeah. My, my list of things I need to do in the world is very long.
1: <laughs> well, you you have big ambitions to do good things for the world and that's kind of what happens, you know. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I also reconcile it for myself. I practice reading. Yes. That helps a lot.
1: Yeah. Okay, so then you get into this doc division of this company. And then what kind of projects were you doing there? Is that, when did you do the Defiant ones?
0: Well, that was years later. The first one I did with them was um, with Scorsese, George Harrison, living in the material world.
1: I've heard of these. Uh, yeah, I've heard, heard of these him. people. <laughs> L- loosely. I've heard of them.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it rings a bell. Yeah. Um, yeah, And I was just like the production executive. So it was my first foray into looking at budgets and understanding What's happening with them? I had to teach myself movie magic budgeting over Christmas.
1: How was that? <laughs>
0: well, I didn't have the program, so my parents gave it to me as a Christmas present, and I taught myself <laughs> over the whole day. I just like looked at other budgets. and was like, okay, that's how you do that. Yeah, got yeah.
1: It. Movie magic is as a um, staple of the industry that you know has is just software that's super outdated. And I love love them. I just wish they would come up with like a little better talk about a first world problem. You know what I mean? Like just can can we come up with a little cleaner, smoother, more 2020 friendly version of that software, but it is still pretty much like at least in the feature television doc space, commercials have different budgets they use, but I don't know. I liked it. <laughs> I enjoy it. I love budgeting, actually. There's something very calming and therapeutic about it.
0: I really like budgeting. Yeah. I don't like tracking a budget and being the person who every day has to say, how much oh, yeah. money do we have left in there? And no, you can't do that. That's thing. why you have an accountant. Yeah. And the line producer, ideally.
1: Depends on the show. But yes.
0: Yes. It totally depends on the show. But I do love the process of creating the budget, because I think it goes hand in hand with the creative. Mm-hmm. And and if you do it well you avoid however long period of time a year year and a half of stress <laughs> yeah but if you don't do it well you're setting everyone in your team up for a year of stress
1: it's an art form believe believe yeah. you me i think it's it's a skill that can be very undervalued really takes a lot of creative thought and problem solving for things that yeah,
0: exactly how are we going to pull this? Yeah.
1: Off? You have to think about, okay, well, we don't know how and when, or we don't know any of those things, but I have to think through all of the known possibilities in this moment in time and make a plan for that.
0: Yeah. It's really tricky. It's especially tricky. Well, it depends who, who you're working with. Like uh, the defiant ones, we originally budgeted as a 90 minute film to be completed in a year. And within moments of doing the first <laughs> interviews, it was very clear that the, that it was a series. And it may have always been clear to other people, but it became clear that that was going to have to be like the the studio was gonna have to get on board with this this is not a 90-minute film
1: (laughs) and i'm glad it wasn't i mean the defiant ones is still one of my favorite doc series which is what it became everything about it was so fascinating and the editing the sound the sound editing was just like so cool yeah
0: well alan the director is obsessive about sound in the best way
1: well it shows i mean it's so unique
0: yeah. And I mean, it's a it's a film about sound. It's about yeah. two of the leaders in the world of sound. So yeah, yeah, it's a pretty important. element.
1: <laughs> Quick plug for the defiant ones. If you have not seen it, <laughs> what is it about? Tell everybody.
0: Um, it's a four part series on HBO about the lives of Jimmy Iovine and Dr. Dre and how they Jimmy sort of took over the world of rock and Dr. Dre, the world of hip hop. And they came together. And then ultimately created beats and uh, their own school, their own academy at USC.
1: And the rest is history. It's great. I had no idea Jimmy Iovine had been around so long. He like worked like any musician you can probably name from the past like forty years. He's worked with them. You're like, how old are you? All the greats, you know. It's like, what are? Where is the the fountain of youth that you're drinking from? I know. It looks like he's been around for a hundred years. He's like, worked <laughs> with Ella Fitzgerald. No, I'm kidding, but he could have. You
0: know? He might have.
1: He might have. Who knows? <laughs> <He> probably.
0: <didn't.
1: laughs> Check it out if you do. Tag us. Let us know what you thought of it.
0: When I got the call for the divine once, it was because of the George Harrison project because yeah. that was another one that went on far longer than. They thought it would and cost a lot more than they thought it would.
1: (laughs) Yeah. A lot of docs fall into that trap, I find.
0: Yeah. It's helpful when you're dealing with what's happened in the past. But even then, I think people have a tendency in the doc world to make things longer than they need to be. Mm. this is something that um, I remember Eva Orner saying very early on when we were doing Bikram is she wanted to make this a 90-minute film. And there are people who would have made it a series because there's a lot there, but she wanted to be disciplined about it. So I think that there can be a lack of discipline when people are doing um, projects on subjects that they really love and really passionate about. It can be hard to discipline yourself in that, but sometimes it just warrants it. So those things can be tough to budget because you don't, especially if they're archive heavy and you haven't done the research up front with the archive as well, you can spend X, extra weeks, extra months, digging through all that in the edit. Um, But the ones that are even harder to budget are the ones that are happening in real time in front of you, Mm -hmm, mm
1: -hmm, mm -hmm.
0: especially something like rescuing child slaves. You don't know what's going to happen at any moment (laughs) of any day. (laughs)
1: it's 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 insane I think every movie is a mirror if every movie is a miracle every like narrative film is a miracle that it gets made with a plan and a script and a blueprint then a doc is like <laughs> what's the next level from a miracle I don't even know like the the fact that any documentary gets completed and then can have a massive impact or reach the, the level of like winning a Sundance or winning a Grammy or winning these awards, I think is just so astronomical because the odds are so stacked against you at every yeah. step of the way. Anything can and will go wrong. <laughs> you know,
0: I have nothing but respect for the line producer of the current series that I'm working on because I can't even imagine what, the coronavirus outbreak yeah. has done to production. We're really lucky because we have an editor who was from Italy mm. and we pivoted to a remote workflow. And at a certain stage in a doc, you make the film in the edit. So this series that I'm doing is half doc and half scripted because I really want to move more into the scripted space. Mm. So we will get our film to the point where everything is edited, but then we have storyboards for what will the recreations will be. And we'll go out and shoot those in the summer once the lockdown has lifted.
1: Sweet, but you're almost done with that project then here towards the end. Okay, cool. Yes. Okay, so we talked about the last time I interviewed you, I think you had just, it was, I think, was it 2018? Is that possible? Yeah. Because you had just come from the Kylash Dock, Price of Free, winning Sundance. And then you you had hopped on a flight and you Mm -hmm. went to the Grammys and won a Grammy for the Defiant Ones. And then you had to go somewhere else right after that, because you mentioned that experience being a bit of a blur. So I think oftentimes, people look at when we find moments of success and validation in the form of prizes or notoriety and and awards and festivals, and they think, oh, well, that's like, that's the thing. And that's the moment you have made it, you know, and they think that that is all that it is, or that is all that we should aspire to is for these sort of accolades. Uh As someone who has won a lot of these accolades, will you speak a little bit to what that experience was like? And, and, and then, just having to go back to like real life after that
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah um of course it's very validating in some way that your peers in the industry say hey you did good job yeah (laughs) so that that just feels good and i know that i suffer from and i think a lot of people suffer from a little bit of imposter syndrome because you're always thinking Mm -hmm. like oh god i don't know what i'm doing (laughs) (laughs) yeah Maybe not you. I feel like that
1: all but, like, the time. It, actually, <laughs> it happens to me all a the lot. Time.
0: <laughs> like, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? And, and like, oh God, I'm failing yep. at, at this. Like, Guilty. Even as you're succeeding, and mm-hmm. that's that's unhealthy, and that's a subject for another podcast
1: I know I need to have a therapist (laughs) an actual therapist on here and just record like a session and share that with everybody because it's it's true it's true
0: and you also you just forget how hard it is when you're at the beginning of something you're like this is going to be so great and you just you just forget (laughs) how hard it can be yeah so it's nice to have people say, hey, good job on that one. But then it also is obviously tremendously helpful in opening doors to other projects. And now I'll have people just randomly hit me up on Facebook and say, hey, do you have any interest in this amazing story? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I do. <laughs> we should talk. Nobody would have come to me with those ideas before. Maybe
1: It's a good thing for sure.
0: It's good. It's a good thing. It's also a little surreal. I mean, I don't know. I'm completely inarticulate about this because it's it's fun and it's funny, but it doesn't mean anything at the end of the day and it doesn't make any difference. I remember Stephen Merchant, this stand-up comedian, coming to do this little tiny gig at a pub in London, someone started heckling him and he pulled his golden globe out of the bag and put it on the stool. And he's like, I carry this with me because you never know what I'm gonna need it. <laughs> like, and I remember joking with TJ and Dan after undefeated won the Oscar and asking them if they were gonna like take it in the meetings. With them. <laughs> Just to be like, I do know what I'm doing.
1: I know, right? It's it's a really interesting phenomenon. But I think like, if that's all you're after, I think it's going to be a very, um, Unhappy life that you're setting yourself up for because that experience is like a minuscule fraction of the whole.
0: Yeah, for me it was 48 hours (laughs) in in many many. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you still have to do good work. Like I hope I live for a long time. If I was done now, (laughs) I would be so bored. (laughs) But also, like a year after that, right? So I started turning jobs down because. I didn't want to do and that was a big deal for me but it led to a period last summer it was by choice but I ended up not working for about five months which is a long time and towards the end of that I was like oh gosh (laughs) am I going to work again (laughs) (laughs) which is a stupid thought to have because all I have to yeah all I have to do is look (laughs) and there's always work Or you make it yourself. Yeah. Anyway, point being, it doesn't mean you don't still have to hustle. That's
1: right. In fact, I wonder if it makes you have to hustle. Like maybe the upfront hustle isn't as hard to get the jobs or to get in rooms with people but then it's this hustle is almost like on the tail end where you have to consistently be doing now work at that level yeah and collaborating with people at that level yeah because if you go back then they're like oh maybe she was a hack or maybe how did she get in here who let her in you know she got a pass we, we can't have that riffraff in here you know um i speak for myself when i say riffraff not you you're not riffraff um but you know i I, I, yeah, there's that. There's that pressure. And I think it is insurmountable. And a lot of people think that they want that. But once they get there, they go, oh, shit, now I got to like, keep all these balls spinning at at a higher altitude, so to speak, <laughs> with less air. <laughs> yeah,
0: I, uh, yeah, I guess so. You do. You want to keep up the caliber of work. And it's like, oh. Well, why didn't that one get nominated?
1: Right. And then you <laughs> go into this other problem of expecting that everything you do should be like the Midas touch.
0: <laughs> yeah, it should be winning something. <laughs> yeah. You have to do really good work. If
1: you're, if you're proud of it and, and it gets that kind of recognition, then, I mean, that's the dream scenario. You know, you're doing good work that you're proud of that's actually helping the world. It's like, yeah. you know, I remember my tiny version of your experience is when Autism and Love, you know, world premiered at Tribeca. And that was like, we did get nominated for an Emmy a year or two later. But I just remember, even though the Emmy experience was so surreal and cool, the fact that I got to premiere the first thing I ever really produced feature length at a festival that I deemed super massive. And it was such an important story that like, seeing the faces of parents and people on the spectrum come up to us after screenings and tell us how much this movie made an impact for them. And then getting to have this world stage that a festival like Tribeca provides um, to share that I remember feeling like, Oh like it doesn't it doesn't get better than this. Like this is as good as it's ever going to get is getting to sit in a room full of people who are truly touched and impacted by your work for a consecutive week and then get to do press and go to parties and talk about that thing and and then everything that comes after that is just a regurgitation of that experience, you know, but I remember being like, okay, like this is, this is the thing. This is the thing everybody talks about and I've tasted that thing and it's great. But like, I don't want to, I'm going to chase that high forever, but I don't want my journey to be defined by, by this is the only part of it that matters. And if I don't get to that part again with other projects, then those projects aren't worth it. You know, Yeah, it was a really great, like, turning point for me and like not idealizing and like romanticizing all of this stuff that festivals and awards can bring you.
0: Right. Because it's just people. It's just real people in a room.
1: <laughs> yes. Yes. I miss people in a room. I miss <laughs> theaters. I do. It's magical. It really is. <sighs>
0: anyway, we'll get
1: back. We'll get back. We'll get back. But um, so I do want to get into a little bit of, you know, in your journey, because I like talking about Kaka and the messy parts of it and navigating through like these periods of career lulls and being in the valleys of it. um, How has that been for you? And how have you continued to like suit up, armor up, especially given some of the work you've done that is um, very challenging, uh, spiritually, emotionally, psychologically? How do you find that Inertia to keep yourself going.
0: Um, I'm just, I'm, I'm pretty obsessive about the idea that we have created certain problems on planet Earth, and we have to be able to solve them. We just have to be able to solve them. So I'm constantly looking for stories about people who are solving them or experiencing problems. And so, because I'm putting that out there all the time, it's always coming. Back to me. So my periods of not working, like I said, that was the first time I've ever been like afraid that I wasn't gonna work again, and it didn't last very. Long. <laughs> it didn't last very long, but <laughs> but um, I just move forward because I just move forward. I get bored really easily, so I have to be doing something, learning something, looking for something. Yeah, it's almost unhealthy to the point where if I have like. 10 minutes I'm like what should I be doing with this 10 minutes
1: (laughs) yeah we're cut from the same cloth you and I sister
0: (laughs) (laughs) I know um I just got an offer to to talk to some people about another project and it's on a subject I've never heard of before and I looked him up and it's an author and I got the book is on its way and I'm like even if I don't do this job I got like a gift with this one because it's about like tools for creativity
1: nice anyway, that's
0: awesome so i don't know i just i i get fired up by like i said before i practice reiki and that in any moment when i'm freaking out i just say the five basic rules of reiki and i'm like
1: good i'm good what are the five basic rules of reiki <laughs>
0: just for this moment <laughs> do not be angry do not worry be grateful For whatever it is you have that allows you to fulfill your duties and be good to your fellow man. I love it. So I just like take that in for a minute. Because like the other day, we had a deadline to hit and we worked very hard to do this. Like I was up past midnight a few, few nights and at 6.30 on the Friday night, the cut was due they said i want some more time with this contacted the network and the network said no problem turn it in next friday and i did not go right to a place of gratitude <laughs> <laughs> I right to a place of anger <laughs> was like, but you got there eventually yeah there well, eventually. i absolutely got there I, I literally had to be like wait a minute wait a minute <laughs> do not be
1: angry. I love that. I mean, I think I I can say this because I you are my friend. And I I think that so much of what I we have not worked together yet. But so much of what I know of you and your heart and your soul and like, all of these lessons that you've been so lovely in teaching me and it informs so much of like my own experience and my own journey, whether or not we're in constant contact. It's just been it's such a pleasure like knowing you and I don't mean to make this like a love fest podcast but like thank you but it's true you know I think it's important to lift up to give listeners uh, the opportunity to hear your story and your perspectives because I think they're so important and I know we on the last time we recorded a lot of what we talked about was how you know all of this incredible stuff had happened with Kailash the doc and then like Sundance and then the Grammy and then like there was no press done on you no journalists talked to you like nobody's really sat down and talked Talk to you about your story.
0: Um, well, one person did sit down to talk to me about my journey. My hometown newspaper in West Virginia. Yes, <laughs> I remember. Yeah.
1: I just couldn't believe it. I was like, "This is this is one of the." most like notable producers of our time who's doing incredible work is on the front line and nobody's talking to her and so it's just important for me if I can be a vessel for others to listen to these conversations and hear some of this and hopefully it can inspire or incite some action in whatever journey they're on you know whatever path they're on whatever kind of producer they want to be or really a filmmaker I mean I think the podcast really isn't like so you wanna be a producer, kid? Like come on in. It's like right. <laughs> it's really more more like everybody who is an artist, who is creative, who is navigating this journey of this industry can can relate to some of this stuff, hopefully. And so it's speaking of gratitude, like I really I'm always so grateful that people like yourselves take the time to sit and talk to me and hear me babble and like, let me record their stories to share with others. I get so much joy out of out of doing it.
0: Thank you for doing it. You didn't babble at all. I was like, (laughs)
1: well, what I wanted to end on is Anybody listening who has ambitions to sort of mirror a career, path, your career path, particularly, what advice do you have for them?
0: I just thought of that line from the end of that article that was in the Chicago Tribune in 1997 that Baz Luhrmann turned into like a song. And at the end, she says, um, advice is a form of nostalgia. And dispensing it is like taking the past out of the garbage, dusting it off and selling it for more than it's worth. <laughs> um but I would say uh don't be afraid of hard work (laughs) don't take yourself too seriously or anything that you're doing too seriously but take it seriously enough to work hard (laughs) uh don't take things too personally especially in the age of email and text message Mm. I'm still learning how to not read tone of voice into things yeah this is such cliche knowledge but it's not about you (laughs) it's just about the project what does the project need and just thinking ahead always thinking ahead what needs to happen next and that i think is the really the role of a particularly a doc producer and especially a doc that's happening in real time but just in general like I remember somebody gave me this advice one time that if you're in charge, make sure you find somebody else to do the stuff that keeps their head down. Because if your head is down, nobody is watching the whole thing. Mm. So if somebody comes to you with a task, your responsibility is to delegate it, even though you might be a hands-on kind of person, because it's the kind of task that is going to take your head down and you have to keep your head up. Mm. Being super flexible.
1: Oh yeah, it's like a plan is you know immediately gets thrown out the window the moment you go into production. Yeah,
0: exactly. Speaking of life with Kaka, a goat shot on my foot <laughs> in a <the> field in <laughs> India. <laughs>
1: It's a good luck, isn't it? In some countries, I some cultures.
0: <laughs> it didn't feel like the best of luck.
1: <laughs> One last question. You, you've worked on some incredible things. You've been a part of bringing some incredible stories to to life and shining a light onto some out-of-control experiences that real people are having uh, in our world. Which would you say are you most proud of?
0: Definitely The Price of Free because that was a lot of very, very, very hard work and also very rewarding. And I believe that Kailash is one of the most inspirational humans on the planet. So that was yeah. lovely. Bikram, actually, I thought t- is a really good film. <laughs> I really liked uh, the process of working with Eva and Kimberly it's amazing so I'm proud of that one. And the defiant ones, obviously, although I wasn't as involved in the creative, mm-hmm. I was just part of sort of setting it up to make sure it happened. But I'm proud that it happened. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And the George Harrison project was really special to me because getting to meet his friends and hearing their philosophy on life and learning about his philosophy on life, the first time I read Autobiography of a Yogi, <laughs> was just a really unique and special experience because I honestly think if you haven't seen the second half of that film, it teaches you how to be a better human. But, it, I mean, theres I'm, I'm proud of a lot of them.
1: Well, you've done some incredible work. I mean, you should be proud of all of it, but I was just curious if, like, there was any particular one that stood out. Stood yeah. out? Yeah. it would be Kailash. I mean, Kailash is... What a once-in-a-lifetime experience, you know?
0: It was super weird, though, when it ended. And it's still weird now because that was, the, I, that was my, like, vision for 10 years. Mm. Like, I'm going to do a doc about child slavery. It came to me completely randomly. I didn't cause it to happen in any way. But once that had happened, it was like, now what? And I still don't know.
1: <laughs> well, I have no doubt. If there's anyone who can figure it out, Miss Sarah Anthony, it is you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we'll keep you posted
1: <laughs> keep you posted we'll do a revisit when you've gone to the next tier of being awesome oh, and you can thanks. teach us all about it <laughs> thank you so much
0: Yeah, thanks for taking the
1: time of course thank you for taking the time and that's this week's episode thank you so much for tuning in week after week and doing this life thing with me please spread the word, tell a friend, tag a friend, follow me on social media. I'm at Carolina Gropa. The show's at Life with Kaka. Would love to hear what you think. And I'll see you next week. Beijos.